Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and comment to stay up to date and enjoy life on the Paradise Coast. Now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job. They take care of us, and they'll take care of you, too. You can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We've got some really interesting guests for today's show, including William Yateman. He's a research fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll be visiting with Stephen Sokup. He's the vice president of the political forum and author of a new book. It's called The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. We all know what that's all about. We'll find out why it's happening. We'll also visit with Peter Atkinson. He is the founder of a new group. It's called The Merry Beggars. Such an interesting project that he started as well. We'll be visiting with Peter as well. It is March the 5th, and on this day in 1770, on the cold, snowy night of March the 5th, 1770, a mob of American colonists gathered at the Customs House in Boston and began taunting the British soldiers guarding the building. The protesters, who called themselves patriots, were protesting the occupation of the city by the British troops who were sent to Boston in 1768 to enforce unpopular taxation measures passed by the British Parliament that lacked the American representation. British Captain Thomas Preston, uh, Thomas Preston, the commanding officer at the Customs House, ordered his men to fix their bayonets and join the guard outside the building. The colonists responded by throwing snowballs and other objects at the British regulars, and Private Hugh Montgomery was hit, leading him to discharge his rifle at the crowd. The other soldiers began firing a moment later, and when the smoke cleared, five colonists were dead or dying. Crispus Attucks. Patrick Carr, Samuel Gray, Samuel Maverick, and James Caldwell, and three more were injured. Although it was unclear whether Crispus Attucks, the African-American, was the first of all, that is commonly believed, the deaths of the five men are regarded by some historians as the first fatalities in the American Revolutionary War. The British soldiers were put on trial, and patriots John Adams and John Quincy Adams agreed to defend the uh, soldiers in a show of support of the colonial justice system. When the trial ended on December 1770, two British soldiers were found guilty of manslaughter and had their thumbs branded with an M for murder as punishment. The Sons of Liberty, a patriot group formed in 1765 to oppose the Stamp Act, advertised the Boston Massacre as a battle for American liberty and just cause for the removal of British troops from Boston. Patriot Paul Revere made a provocative engagement, engra- engraving of the incident, depicting the uh, British soldiers lining up like an organized army to suppress the idealized representation of the colonialist uprising. Copies of the engraving were distributed throughout the colonies and helped reinforce negative American sentiments about British rule. In April 1775, the American Revolution began when British troops from Boston skirmished with the American militiamen at the battles of Lexington and Concord. British troops were under orders to capture Patriot leader Samuel Adams and John Hancock in Lexington and to confiscate the Patriot arsenal in Concord. Neither missions were accomplished because of Paul Revere and William Dawes, who rode ahead of the British, warning Adams and Hancock and rousing the Patriot Minutemen. Eleven months later, in March 1776, British forces had evacuated Boston following American General George Washington's successful placement of fortifications and cannons on Dorchester Heights. This bloodless liberation of Boston brought an end to the hated eight-year British occupation of the city. For the victory, General Washington, commander of the Continental Army, was presented with the first medal ever awarded by the Continental Congress. It would be more than five years before the Revolutionary War came to an end with British uh, General Charles Cornwallis' surrender to Washington at Yorktown, Virginia. That's the story of the Boston Massacre. So interesting. Vice President uh, Pamela, I should say Kamala, 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 I'm not sure, 
Anyhow, Vice President Kamala Harris cast the tie-breaking vote Thursday to begin debate on the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. Can't believe it made it this far. The bill likely will face a final vote this weekend. The Senate is going to move forward with the bill. No matter how long it takes, the Senate is going to stay in session to finish the bill this week. That according to uh, leader, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Uh, the Senate voted at 50-50 along party lines before Harris broke the tie. Senator Joe Manchin, uh, Senators Kirsten Cinema, and Senator uh, August King all voted to proceed with the debate. They are among a handful of moderate senators who could determine if the legislation actually passes. Senator Ron Johnson, <laughs> Republican from Wisconsin, is making the Senate staff read the entire text of the 628-page Senate bill, which could take anywhere from 5 to 10 hours. At a minimum, somebody ought to read it, Johnson said. How can you craft effective amendments on a bill that you haven't even seen or haven't been given time to read? Following the bill reading, the Senate will face up to 20 hours of debate before it begins a vote-a-rama, a marathon session in which any senator who wants to force a vote on the amendment will be able to. Republicans are expected to propose amendments, some unrelated to COVID relief, that could force uncomfortable votes for Democrats. The Congressional Budget Office took time to ensure the Senate's legislation, which largely reflects the House bill, complied with reconciliation rules, a budget process that allows Democrats to pass a 60-vote filibuster, a simple majority, can pass the bill. As expected, the Senate's version removes language increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour and lowers the cutoff for receiving stimulus checks to $80,000 income per year for individuals and $160,000 income for couples. The Senate bill also provides a $510 million for FEMA homeless shelter providers, increases the total amount of Amtrak relief funds by $200 million. What's that got to do with COVID relief? and places new guardrails on the $350 billion for state and local governments, according to the source. $350 billion for bailouts for state and local governments. Uh, Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell called the bill ill-suited before Thursday's vote. Way to go, Mitch. Senate Democrats, including committee chairs, are essentially being jammed with texts from the House, McConnell said, their own members have barely been able to read the thing, let alone shape it. The bill will go back to the House, where it will need approval of any changes by the Senate. So this is how sausage is made. I can't believe this thing actually, what, what was approved yesterday, of course, is the ability to discuss the bill and amend the bill, not to pass the bill. So there's still a lot of slips between the cup and the lip, and it's just atrocious that this thing could actually make it this far. So who's really running the country? Kamala Harris on Thursday spoke to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel as Joe Biden slouched around the White House. Joe Biden hosted a group of House members at the White House on Thursday and joined a virtual call with NASA. Apparently Biden's schedule was so grueling today that he had to have his babysitter Kamala take another call with a foreign leader. Kamala Harris, in a phone call with Netanyahu, emphasized the United States' unwavering commitment to Israel's security. Harris and Netanyahu agreed to advance COVID cooperation. Vice President Kamala Harris spoke today by phone with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel and underscored the Biden-Harris administration's commitment to the U.S.-Israel partnership. The Vice President emphasized that the United States' unwavering commitment to Israel's security she expressed strong support for Israel's recent groundbreaking normalization agreements with countries in the Arab and Muslim world and stressed the importance of advancing peace, security, prosperity for Israelis as well as Palestinians alike. The Vice President and Prime Minister agreed on the importance of continuing close cooperation. In the meantime, partnership on issues including Iran's nuclear program and regime's dangerous regional behavior they discussed the importance of advancing scientific cooperation between the two countries in efforts to contain the COVID-19 pandemic. They also noted the respective governments' opposition to the international criminal court's attempts 
to exercise its jurisdiction over Israeli personnel. She's playing a key role in the foreign policy just weeks into the new administrations because of Dementia Joe is not mentally fit to hold office. Last month, Biden spent an entire weekend napping and playing Mario Kart at Camp David as thousands of Americans died of COVID-19. Kamala Harris previously spoke to French President Emmanuel Macron and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as Biden napped and played video games. I'm not kidding. That's what really happened. So he's pretty much of just kind of a straw guy up there that's uh, uh, acting as president, but he's not making the decisions. Obviously, Kamala Harris is speaking on behalf of the United States with foreign leaders. And uh, our president is playing video games. Hmm. By the way, former CIA director and architect of Spygate, John Brennan, went all in with the anti-white message being pushed by the left during an appearance at MSNBC Monday. He, uh, the host, Nicole Wallace, asked former Democrat Senator Claire McCaskill about CPAC's most white male audience, gasp, complaining about cancer, uh, cancel culture. McCaskill replied, because they want to be victims, not the perpetrators. I've never seen so many whiny white men calling themselves victims as I saw over the weekend at CPAC. These are all people that think they can have a huge grievance from a position of significant privilege. Brennan piled on and trashed white males. He said, I'm increasingly embarrassed to be a white male these days, prompting MSNBC host Nicole Wallace to laugh. Pretty pathetic. I don't blame him for being embarrassed. I don't know if it's got anything to do with his being white, but perhaps being a liar and not a very good representative of the United States might be another reason for his embarrassment. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples magazine, the website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabee's.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob 
Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and now building a brand new performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Stephen Sokup. He's the vice president of the Political Forum and author of a new book, very interesting, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. Right now we have with us William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure. Tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. Uh, we're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website. And speaking of maybe you're living right there in the Beltway, uh, Washington, D.C. is all fenced up, razor wire, and all kinds of things. How's life in Washington? You know, it's funny you bring that up. Um, I, I, I'll say this. There was a lot of headlines. There was a lot of coverage, news coverage yesterday about a purported threat uh, posed by the QAnon folks that they, they were evidently going to storm the Capitol or there had been reports thereof. Um, I live in the city. Um, you know, I, I walked actually up the center of the city to get to the office yesterday. I saw no such shenanigans, nor even a hint of such shenanigans. And I do wonder... Um, whether or not we've got political leadership who are sort of uh, uh, puffing up, if you will, this threat. And I'm, I'm not in any way condoning what happened in January 6th, no. but what I am saying is that it's a common thing for, uh, for politicians to do, and indeed in totalitarian regimes, to sort of engender a domestic threat in order to justify subsequent power grabs. So I, 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 we're, without condoning at all what occurred on January 6th, I do uh, assert um, that what was purported to occur to be a threat yesterday on yeah. March 4th, um, it was never there. I must say, uh, William, I, uh, there, we have some terrific Congress people uh, who are up representing us and doing the best they can, but some of these people are just gangsters up there. And I, I won't even mention names, but it's the irony to me is that we've got razor wire around this place. It's kind of like San Quentin <laughs> and keeping <laughs> keeping these people under wraps. It's kind of interesting. So, hey, the uh, the uh, non-COVID stimulus is before the Senate right now. It's just unbelievable that it could actually get to the form of discussion and review by the Senate. What are your thoughts? Well, you said it correctly, um, non-COVID stimulus. I mean, it's purported to be a bill in response to the COVID pandemic um, and related issues, but it's got a pension bailout, a teacher's bailout, a bailout for blue states, um, amidst a bunch of other uh, kind of superfluous spending unconnected to the ongoing pandemic. I think Senator Mitch McConnell hit the nail on the head when he called it this $1.9 trillion bill a bloated liberal wish list. Um, I'll say this as well. So I guess we spoke last week. Um, it passed last Friday in the House of Representatives. The Senate is expected to take a vote this weekend on the measure. There's been slight modifications to the bill that was passed by the House. Um, if the Senate were to pass uh, this this, COVID, this non-COVID stimulus, then it would go to a conference committee where the House and the Senate would iron out any differences between their respective bills, and then it would get voted again. Um, uh, having said all that, I'll note this. Uh, this bill was written in, in late 2020. Um, it's now March, and things have changed. I mean, uh, the current events are coming at us rapidly. Um, the, the virus numbers seem to be much better. We got economic reports yesterday that were much rosier than, than we had thought. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it really lends impetus to this argument made by uh, opponents of this 1.9, the latest COVID stimulus. I mean, remember, Congress has already spent $4 trillion. Um, were allocated $4 trillion towards COVID stimulus spending in five prior bills. But it just, given how different the circumstances are today than how they were when this bill was written a few months ago, it really does call into question um, the necessity, even if this were targeted at COVID, which it isn't, um, you know, just what the, the numbers that are being bandied about, it just calls into question um, whether those are remotely necessary. Yeah, and uh, just to also, we've still got a trillion dollars set aside that hasn't been used from the previous bills, too. So uh, That's exactly right. We, we've spoken about that before, and I'll say this. It's, it's not just that it's a non-COVID stimulus. It's also a non-stimulus stimulus. stimulus. 
Um, much of the spending will take years to get out the door. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's not addressing acute problems, um, much of the spending. So, it's uh, again, it, this, this bill is rife with problems. I mean, uh, the Democrats are certainly playing hardball in the Senate by circumventing the filibuster. Um, so it doesn't really comport with the calls uh, for unity that we've seen from the incumbent administration. Yeah. That's when we'll also move to the House passed the H.R. 1 bill. This is just incredible in terms of just trying to institutionalize the cheating that occurred during the, the uh, past election. What are your thoughts? Well, this is something that the Democrats have passed before. I mean, I believe they passed it last Congress, and it, it is a sweeping law. It would, in effect, nationalize um, elections. Um, so among the measures included in H.R. 1, which is a 791-page bill, uh, calls for automatic voter registration um, and universal mail-in ballots. Uh, I've got two bits of commentary on the bill. One, it does seem to fly in the face of the Constitution, mm-hmm. um, which the Article 2, Section 1 gives the states the, the power to oversee the manner of elections. Um, Congress, to be sure, does have constitutional authority to regulate the time and place of elections, but that seems like a, a, a pretty narrow hook to try to, to put their hat on for this sweeping of bill. Um, so as a constitutional matter, I think it's highly problematic. Um, and as a policy matter, I'll note this. It, it does seem to lock in place. And, you know, without commenting at all on the prior election or, you know, fraud, the, the, any allegations of fraud or anything of that sort, it is nonetheless the fact that that election, because it took a number of days to, to settle, um, that it engendered a lot of uncertainty um, and, and skepticism among millions of Americans about how our electoral system works. And, and I don't think... Um, locking in those sorts of changes, especially in an unconstitutional manner at the national level. Um, I just don't know if a policy measure, they're not courting more trouble down the road, more uncertainty. Yeah. You know, from my standpoint, I'm just encouraging our legislators to use the concept of nullification. And for all these executive orders that the president has passed, including these bills, H.R. 1 and others, to start begin passing legislation approved by the governor to nullify uh, these orders that, in my opinion, overstep uh, the constitutional bounds of the federal government. It is, look, we have a federalist system, and, and the states that have a tremendous role to play in the law, and indeed in sort of the execution of the Constitution and interpreting. Um, so uh, I'm, nullification gets a bad rap due to you know, its history of the 19th century of this country. Um, nevertheless, and I do, I, that is to say, I think there are many mechanisms short of nullification mm-hmm. that can be performed at the state level that would achieve much the same result. And I, I'm all for it. Again, that's how our system is supposed to work. That's one of the biggest checks built into our system is the division of power between the states and the federal government. Yeah. I want to move to the uh, nominations that Biden is making and some of his candidates for uh, positions that have to be approved by the Senate. Not going so well. <laughs> it hasn't been going well at all. I mean, it is a historically slow pace. So we spoke last week about how his pick for the Office of Management and Budget, which is a hugely important role. It's part of the White House staff. It basically it's the brain of the administrative state. Um, well, he'd chosen Neera Tandon, uh, a progressive firebrand who had this long history of, of insulting members of the Senate um, through social media. Her nomination was torpedoed this past week. Uh, officially, it was withdrawn, and and that at the cabinet level, uh, at the present, Biden only six of thirteen cabinet level positions are filled, and among agencies, only ten of fifty positions are filled. And evidently, according to an Associated Press this uh, report this week, that is a a record slow pace. Um, even in, including the Trump administration. So uh, my overall commentary on that would be, well, geez, Louise, um, I bet the Senate regrets wasting a week on an impeachment trial when they could have been, um, you know, stealing President Biden's officers um, to execute his agenda. So it just seems like the, the, perhaps the, the Democratic caucus and the Senate shot themselves in the foot um, by getting their eye off the ball. Absolutely. William, you're going to give so much more to talk about. Just got to wait until next week, though, William. Uh, again, 
research fellow at the Cato Institute. I encourage our listeners to go to Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. William, always appreciate your commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Stephen Zokup. He is the vice president of the Political Forum and author of The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show, providing you news and commentary rooted in the commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Peter Atkinson. Right now we have with us Stephen Sokup. He is the vice president of the political fund of a terrific new book, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Tell us about the Political Forum and what it's all about. Well, the Political Forum is uh, what would be called a independent research provider. Um, we deliver um, commentary and forecasting uh, to the institutional investor community. Um, we focus on political and social events and trends uh, that might have an effect uh, on financial markets. Uh, over uh, the near term. And the website is? Uh, well, it's currently under construction, but it's thepoliticalforum.com, uh, and we, we have a new uh, website for, for another project that we're working on. It's thepfi.org. Uh, that will be our... Um, that's a little more functional, and that, that's our uh, nonprofit arm. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, new book, which I think is so appropriate and so important at these times. It's called The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business. I think we've all seen the effects of this. Why would you write this book in the first place? Well, uh, <clears throat> as I said, I, I work in the financial markets, or I work with uh, people who are uh, large professional investors, uh, and um, I, I've done so for the past 25 years. This is this is my field. This is the only professional field I've ever worked in. Mm -hmm. uh, and over the past, say, three or four years, I've noticed a shift, uh, not only in in the way business 
uh, approaches politics, but the way the, uh, the financial services community, uh, Wall Street more generally, uh, approaches bits, business. Uh, and and it's, it, it's been very uh, troubling uh, and frustrating for me, the direction that I think that, uh, that the financial world has taken with respect to politics. Uh, and, and so I spent some time uh, trying to understand what is going on and why it's happening. Uh, and then I spent some time talking with people who are, are working on the issue itself. Uh, and it became clear to me that this was not only an enormous problem for people who work uh, in financial services, but for the nation itself. You couldn't be, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think just to think of what's happened with Nike, I think what's happened with regard to uh, my pillow, for example. And uh, so some of the other companies who've tried to cancel uh, advertisers on different shows, like Tucker Carlson. What exactly is woke capital and the impact it's having on American business and culture? Well, woke capital uh, is a top-down, uh, anti-democratic strategy uh, being employed by some of the, uh, the biggest names in American business uh, to change the way American business functions, uh, to change the definition of capitalism, uh, and also to change the very relationship uh, between the citizen and the state. Mm. So what is ESG movement? What is the movement, and how is it changing business and capitalism itself? Well, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance Investing. And ESG is, without question, uh, the hottest trend uh, in the investment world uh, uh, in North America and in Europe uh, for at least uh, the past maybe two or three years. Uh, it is an investment strategy uh, that pushes, uh, as, a, you know, as its name indicates, uh, social matters uh, in investment uh, and intends uh, to compel companies, corporations, uh, to behave by a certain uh, political standards uh, and to direct a certain amount of their energies toward political efforts uh, as opposed to uh, traditional business practices. Scary stuff to me, quite frankly. I mean, I, I look at these, uh, for example, oil companies who are, are in my opinion, kowtowing to the uh, green movement and trying to impress the fact that they're making great advances with uh, reducing carbon emissions and so forth. Which, quite frankly, is uh, I think uh, they're they're not staying in their lane. They should be doing the best they can in order to provide great service and great supplies and great uh, great uh, production for their investors and for in in a certainly in a socially responsible way. But that seems to be there seems to be going overboard on that. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the the energy companies. Um, because th these are the companies that are being uh, uh, that are most among the companies that are most affected uh, by ESG. Mm -hmm. um, ESG uh, is an investor-centered uh, uh, movement, uh, and and so that these investors are directing uh, funds away from companies uh, or seeking to change the policies. Uh, and managers at companies uh, that are engaged in business practices they don't much care for, and uh, providing fossil fuels is one of them. Mm. Um, so you get what you end up getting is is large banks uh, like J.P. Morgan uh, saying they're no longer going to provide credit for traditional fossil fuel energy companies. Uh, you get uh, large asset management firms like BlackRock saying they're. Uh, going to reduce their investments uh, and are going to pursue um, uh, policy changes, uh, board changes, and management changes at these firms. They're going to leverage their, their enormous power, and, and BlackRock does, in fact, have enormous power with $9 trillion in assets under management, uh, to, to pursue uh, these efforts at these traditional energy companies. Uh, so the energy companies are, are in a very, very difficult position. They're they're being decapitalized, uh, you know, in real time yeah. uh, by these ESG crusaders. 
and it's just uh, pathetic actually and quite frankly you take a step back and you have to start to question is is the science real that backs this stuff in my opinion in many cases it's not if if it's not wrong at least it's flawed and and yet major decisions are being made based on the premise that the uh, science is right yeah yeah not o- not only based on the the premise that the science is right but that we understand specifically uh, how um, innovation will or will not play a role. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a recent paper uh, that was published by uh, a couple of professors at uh, the Harvard Business School that, that demonstrates that most of uh, the overwhelming majority of new uh, patents filed and issued uh, in alternative energy are coming from researchers at the traditional large fossil fuel energy companies. They're not coming from startups. They're not coming from alternative energy companies. They're not coming from these, these little firms that are very much uh, the environmentalist darling companies. They're coming from traditional energy firms. So uh, essentially what we're doing uh, by defunding, uh, decapitalizing these companies is cutting off our nose despite our face. Uh, if we truly believe uh, that the creation of new technologies uh, with respect to energy production uh, is going to be important in, in fighting, uh, you know, whatever happens with respect to climate. Um, then what we're doing is is counterproductive, very counterproductive. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm a baseball fan, football fan, and uh, we've seen a drastic reduction in the interest in professional football, professional basketball baseball and of course in many cases they're they're taking up this whole wokeness idea of black lives matter and so forth and i think it's really hurting them it's turning off viewers like myself it's it's uh, uh, in some ways just uh, really reduced my interest in uh, following the sports i mean as consumers we can do something about this it seems to me but is it enough well um with respect to, to how business is functioning uh, and, and how businesses uh, are operating in in this new, very uh, aggressively anti-democratic uh, corporate finance world, I, I think we do have a voice, and, and I do think that we can make a difference. It's important to remember uh, that all of these asset management firms uh, that are leveraging their uh, invested funds to force corporations to behave a certain way. Uh, the the money they're using I- is our money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, BlackRock doesn't have uh, nine trillion dollars of its own money. It has nine trillion dollars of our money, the money that we have invested in their funds. Mm. Um, uh, the same goes for Vanguard, and it's seven trillion, and State Street, and it's five trillion. Uh, that's our money. Uh, so if we choose uh, either to press- pressure the companies to give us uh, the say that we, we should have uh, in the direction uh, that their funds take with respect to, to corporate governance, or if we threaten to move the money if they don't, um, then I, I think we can have a very uh, significant impact on the way that uh, the finance aspect of this uh, corporate wokeness uh, is operating. Yeah, well, you know, it's clearly a move towards the left, uh, what's gone on said in, perhaps in this interview, but is there anything that on the right that can be done in order to bring us back to uh, ground zero or back to the point where the discussion is around the quality of the products and the quality of the services being provided and not about the position uh, and, and politics that the companies are taking are are taking. Well, uh, yeah. Um, we, as I said, we, we need to be uh, very uh, aware. We need to ra- to raise awareness of what is happening and why it's happening. It's it's not just happening because a few people uh, in business or a few people in uh, professional sports have decided that they want to talk about politics. It, you know, there is a very uh, large and and very sort of uh, hidden uh, covert effort uh, that's going on. And if we make ourselves aware of that and then use uh, the money uh, that we have as consumers or as investors, uh, people saving for our our retirement, etc., if we're aware of what's happening and if we leverage our financial wealth, uh, then we can uh, push back against this, I think, 
relatively effectively. Interesting. Uh, before I let you go, Stephen, I do want to ask you also about what appears to be the tremendous influence that uh, the Chinese, for example, might be having in for our movie industry and what's going on with regard to uh, uh, the whole and the NBA, to, 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 make, to name one. The fact that uh, Chinese, in many cases, uh, actually review scripts to determine if, in fact, there's information that they may not approve of before uh, movie, movies are published. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, um, throughout uh, American industry, um, the, the Chinese have grown uh, in significant influence uh, over the past decade. Um, American businesses uh, ha- have seen that you know the world's largest population uh, generally um, untapped uh, by Western capitalist uh, endeavors um, is. A, a vast market, uh, and so they've made an effort uh, to invest in and to uh, a- a- aggressively pursue um, Chinese businesses. Mm-hmm. A- and the issue there is that in order to do so, one has to align oneself uh, with uh, the values of the CCP, the Co- Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and so what we have are, are a number of... Um, large, very prominent uh, industries and businesses within those industries uh, basically compromising uh, their uh, ethical beliefs and their ethical behavior uh, in order to pursue this massive market. Uh, Disney, uh, as you mentioned with respect to filmmaking, uh, is one of the most blatant uh, in doing so. Um, They've they've very much kowtowed uh, to the Chinese uh, Communist Party uh, in various things that they do in productions. Uh, at the end of Mulan, for example, they they even thanked the regional government uh, in Xinjiang Province, which is you know where the Uyghurs are being held uh, in uh, re-education or concentration camps. Uh, so it's it's a very much uh, an issue of these corporate leaders uh, being blinded. Uh, by this vast, largely untapped market, uh, to um, compromise their uh, their ethics in order to do so. Yeah, I'm, I'm so gl- grateful you wrote this book. It's called "The Dictatorship of Woke Capital: How Political Correctness Captured Big Business" by Stephen R. Sokup. Before I let you go, Stephen, what can what can the average citizen do? How can we fight back against this whole woke capital notion? Well. Um, as I, you know, make yourself aware. Um, uh, learn what uh, your company. Learn what the companies you spend your money on or invest your money with are doing with that money, um, and then engage with the companies. Um, you know, I know a lot of people like the idea uh, of boycotts. If um, Disney continues, you know to do what it does and to, to slap warning labels on the Muppet Show, uh, then they'll just cancel Disney+. Plus. And, and that's fine. For some people, that, that's a way of uh, mm-hmm. making a positive change that they can feel. But at the same time, uh, I'll tell you that uh, customer service departments uh, at these various companies hate to get angry phone calls and hate to get angry letters. And... Uh, more to the point, uh, investor relations departments at these corporations uh, hate to get letters and phone calls from investors, from shareholders. Uh, so it's my uh, belief that if we engage, uh, if we use uh, the, uh, the power that we have uh, as consumers and as shareholders to push back uh, in the same way, basically reverse engineering the way that these 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 woke capitalists uh, have pressured these corporations, then I think that we can uh, probably reverse uh, a certain amount of this or at least stem the tide. Well said. Again, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital by Stephen R. Sokup. Stephen, I just genuinely appreciate this very important commentary on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob, for having me. My pleasure, indeed. Uh, So interesting. I I know that, uh, for example, uh, I've reduced my interest in baseball. It's really stemmed my interest in baseball, professional baseball, same with football and basketball. I'm not the only one. We've seen what's happened to the 
viewership on these sports. Uh, now, no, no doubt uh, COVID-19 has had an impact on, uh, for example, the, the crowds that come to the games. But irrespective, we as consumers can make a difference. And when we see things like this, uh, we need to do something about it. Okay, coming up, we're going to be visiting uh, with Steve Atkinson. Uh, I should say Peter Atkinson, I apologize. He is the founder of uh, the Merry Beggars. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden uh, Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. Listen to the Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulubee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. We have with us Peter Atkinson. I had a chance to have breakfast with Peter one morning and talk about his exciting new project. It's called The Merry Beggars. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to talk to you, Bob. Thank you, Peter. Tell us a little bit about The Merry Beggars. Yeah, so uh, The Merry Beggars is a Catholic theatrical nonprofit, and what we're doing is we're creating work that, uh, that is trying to heal our culture through telling stories that highlights and reveals the dignity of, of man. I came up with the idea, or rather was pushed to the idea, uh, by being in graduate school, I went to Columbia University in New York uh, for my graduate degree in acting, and I just kept on seeing play after play where it was just pushing a certain a certain line of, of ideology or propaganda or whatnot, and uh, I kept on seeing shows that I either couldn't morally be a part of or didn't want to be a part of, and so I, I realized that I needed to create my own organization that could get together Christian and Catholic artists to, um, to produce original works. So, so interesting. And I would imagine there was a certain amount of drama graduating from Columbia <laughs> and trying to make it through the entire process and graduate and having to oh deal, with, deal, yeah. deal with this stuff. Yeah, it was, it was quite the adventure. I, um, in my last year at Columbia, um, they made it a graduation requirement to be part of a show that just was rather gratuitous uh, in, in various ways that probably aren't suitable for mentioning on a morning, uh, morning talk show, uh, so I'll spare your listeners. But I eventually had to stand up to the administration and say, you know, I can't be a part of this. And 
unfortunately, you know, actors and artists who want to create a sort of life-giving culture in our country keep on being asked to do projects that, um, that are just, you know, immoral, violate their conscience, et cetera, et cetera. And so usually they end up leaving the industry. And what I wanted to do is create a home for artists like that to create original content so they don't have to leave the industry. Yeah, so interesting because uh, I agree with you. I uh, served on the board for of Gulf Shore Playhouse for 15 years, and I'm very proud of what we've accomplished. Nevertheless, some of the uh, productions that I watch, I'm saying, I kind of cringe. I'm saying, ooh, <laughs> am I actually part of this? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not exactly up my line in terms of supporting my values necessarily. So, yeah. so uh, but here you've uh, you started this organization, I believe, at the beginning of last year, or, or in the middle of last year, and voila, right in the middle of this COVID experience. So what are you doing to deal with it? Yeah, so I started it. I started the, the seed of this idea when I first went to Columbia University back in 2017. And uh, I've been playing around with a few ideas. And we finally sort of landed on our, um, we landed on our uh, programming at the beginning of uh, 2020, and we were planning a lot of in-person events, uh, a lot of in-person events. And then, of course, the COVID hits, the pandemic starts, all of our programming gets thrown out of the window. So we pivot pretty quickly, and we start a contest for radio uh, plays. And we ask playwrights around the world to write 10-minute radio plays in response to the theme of quarantine. Um, you know, like, what is, I mean, we've all had this sort of strange experience in quarantine, We've been isolated. Uh, we've been separated from family and friends. And so we we're curious what playwrights uh, could make of it, what, what new stories and plays could arise out of this strange experience. And we ended up receiving, you know, over 100 in the world. Wow. And that's when we realized that people are really hungry to keep creating in the pandemic. Also, um, they're also really excited to build out stories in the radio medium. And we realized that the audience is also really excited about, uh, about radio and about audio. And so we pivoted all of our programming to focus entirely on doing audio productions. So right now we're producing a bunch of those scripts that we received. They, <laughs> the scripts vary from stories that involve, you know, zombies to very gentle, beautiful love stories stories of families and husbands and wives reconciling and it's just like all over the map which is uh such a joy to produce all of them and then we're also currently uh developing a kids show about two irish catholics who are trying to protect their dad from from sabotage as they race across america to uh stories about um Lejeune and adaptations of of novels that that we think will really make incredible audio plays so it, it really opened our eyes up to the possibility of audio and audio productions. And it looked, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it looked like a, a massive obstacle to everything that we had planned. But then it ended up redirecting us to the greatest opportunity that we've come across so far. Yeah, it's so um, exciting. So it's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. It looks like you've pulled, exactly. it, <laughs> pulled it all pretty pretty well. Without getting too much into the weeds here, uh, how do you deal with this whole issue of unions? I'm sure some of your actors, for example, are involved in uh, some of the unions. Yeah, no, I mean, I myself am an uh, equity union, but the beautiful thing about the unions is they are very slow-moving. Uh, and so when the unions created the rules, uh, they were based around TV, film, and stage plays. Mm. And because, you know, we're sort of living in the second golden age of radio with the amount of podcasts and audio things that have come up, most of the SAG-AFTRA or equity unions treat podcasts as uh, what's called new media. And generally that means that you can either do the work as non-union or you can get union actors to perform in the productions without having to uh, sign a union contract or anything. See, see, that's, so it sort, of, it sort of skirts around the rules, and I am very, very thankful for that. Ah, that sounds very exciting because you may be aware right now that the, <laughs> the unions are not making it easy during this COVID experience for sure. I have known, I've known many of my friends in New York uh, have left the unions because 
they can't get work yeah. uh, unless they do non-union work right now. Yeah. So this is so exciting. Uh, and so tell us, uh, I'm sure there's some people out there who say, well, I would like to get involved. I would like to be part of this. I'd, I'd like to, uh, I mean, what are some of the opportunities that you're holding out for the public? Yeah. So we, so, and everyone can go to the marybeggers.com. That's T-H-E-M-E-R-R-Y-B-E-G-G-A-R-S.com. And they can see uh, what we have. The easiest way, of course, is to listen to the shows that we've produced. Um, we have all those shows up on our website. Uh, you can also find them anywhere you find podcasts. And if you're an artist, there are sort of two ways that you can get um, involved. The first is we offer artist training workshops. So one of the things that I saw was um, unless you go to New York or L.A., you don't really have access to world-class training. And uh, that I wanted to make the type of training that I got at Columbia University available to anyone who wanted to take advantage of it. So, for instance, tomorrow morning, we're offering a workshop with a, just an amazing playwright. He's founded theaters himself, taught hundreds of writers, and we're able to, sort of ridiculous, but we're able to offer a two-hour playwriting workshop with him for 35 bucks which is a lot cheaper than an MFA degree or anything like that. Sure. Um, so we're, we're trying to build up this artist training program, offering these audio shows. And then if anyone, maybe, maybe Bob, I'll have you as a voice actor on our next production. Uh, anyone who has a mic and, and wants to perform and be a voice actor, you can go and audition on our website. Uh, and those are sort of the ways that, that we're trying to get a community built around these productions. Well, you know what? Uh, if if I can be of help, count me in because I think it's a ter- <laughs> I think it's a, it's a terrific uh, organization. Again, the Merry Beggars, and I'm back to the back to the vision, back to the mission about this. Just to remind our listeners, this is all about saying. You know, these are productions that you could be proud to share with your kids. You could be proud to share with your friends. It supports the whole notion of the, the positive within us and, and uh, making positive messages. Did I get that right? It's about... Uh, yeah, no, that's a, that's exactly right. The, the, the take on we've had from the very beginning has been to heal our culture. And people sort of understand what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is, you know, I'm... I'm a Catholic, and so we're creating productions that are in harmony with the Catholic worldview of the person. And what, that, what does that mean? It means that we have a desire for God or for the transcendent, that we're called to live lives of virtue and service to others, that we're capable of greatness and of love and of honoring those around us. Like, that's the core of, of incredible stories. And one of the most fun things has been hearing from artists who, one of my favorite comments has been, it was such a relief to see a classy audition notice. Because most of the time actors go in and they're like, oh no, what's this play about? Is it going to be dingy? Is it going to be something I can share with my parents? And uh, it's so fun to hear from artists that they're relieved to, to see productions that they can be a part of, that they can feel proud of just as you said i think it was, the way you put it was beautiful i think that's exactly right well and all this of course takes money and uh <laughs> that's very true I'm, I'm proud to contribute but also uh, i would encourage you to go i, I listen to it i can't I, I can't find it right now on the website but i might it was about uh, riding in the rain with your kids uh yes and uh, I enjoyed the story so much. So it's, it's not necessarily an object lesson. Not everything hits you over the head with Catholic values necessarily. But, uh, you know, it, it just it absolutely is void of the, of the language and the, <laughs> the thoughts that you just don't want to have in, in a play. So I just really congratulate you on, on the work that you're doing. The website, again, is the Merry Beggars dot com and that's m e r r y b e g g a r s the merry beggars dot com is the website I encourage you to visit it listen to some of the work that's being done and if it compels you as it has to me uh, make a personal contribution uh, Peter Atkinson again founder and uh, CEO I genuinely appreciate you coming on the show thank you so much for joining us Bob we're proud to proud to have you as a partner and a contributor and and I'm, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much, Peter. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, on Monday, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We've been talking about current world events, certainly seeing a decline 
in coronavirus. It'll be interesting to get his take on that. Also, Larry Reed, he is a professor, I should say, uh, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And Jim McTagg will be joining us, former, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Two Great Murder Mysteries, Father the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information or requests for audio files of previous shows, go to www.bobharden.com. Yeah, yeah, you will turn to shout about your name.